Well, as we continue our conversation about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we, we were talking about the Old Testament. Let's move to the Gospels, because this is where a lot of the preaching and teaching is going to come from. This and obviously the teachings of Paul, which we'll get to later. So let's go to Matthew 19. Uh, Matthew's Gospel is a little different in points than Mark and Luke. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the famous exception clause uh, that many are familiar with, starting in Matthew 19, probably about verse 3 through about verse 12-ish or so. Mm-hmm. And so, Andreas, talk to us about this. Why, why is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife uh, for reasons of adultery, things like that? What, why Matthew? Why the exception clause? What do you think? I think this is a great example in interpreting Scripture where really studying the historical setting of the passage mm. is so vital to Maybe really a little hermeneutics understand. course would be helpful. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Uh, because here what you have is we have the, uh, the privilege and the opportunity that the Mishnah, which mm. was compiled 200, mm-hmm. but, but uh, tells us what first century rabbis believed right. on Deuteronomy 24. Right. And so we know that the conservative school of Shammai mm-hmm. interpreted that clause there, if something indecent uh, you know, is, is done by the wife, right. they interpreted that in terms of more narrowly, in terms of sexual immorality. Right. Uh, and then you have the, the, the more liberal uh, you know, school of thought, uh, Rabbi Hillel, uh, as far as I know, the more popular of the two. I'm sure he was. <laughs> uh, we interpret it as, especially the first part of, of, of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, uh, she doesn't find favor in his eyes right. as basically anything and everything um, would allow a husband to uh, divorce his wife. And so uh, what the, the Pharisees coming to Jesus uh, are doing there, and it says there, they're trying to test him, right? right? Uh, Again, like later in Matthew's Gospel with the taxes, the question of paying sure. taxes, sure. Uh, they put him in what they thought was a no-win situation. Exactly. Right. Uh, no matter what side he takes, he's going to lose allegiance with the other group. Uh, and again, what Jesus though does uh, in masterful rabbinic fashion is he is saying, okay, now you have this case law in Deuteronomy 24, but right. he's taking it back to right. the foundational right. passage right. in Genesis. Uh, just like today we might do with uh-huh. the Supreme Court or with, 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 with a given law case. You're saying, what's the foundational principle here? And he's the foundational principle that we talked about already in Genesis 2 is that God intended marriage to be a lifelong faithful union between one man and one woman. Sure. Uh, and then he explains Deuteronomy 24 as just a concession to human hardness. Yeah. And, and it really is. And you can definitely see that in verse 3, can't you? Because when the Pharisees ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? I mean, you can almost just hear them leading the question. popular teaching of the day, can't you? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting because uh, we, we obviously need to zero in on verse 9 for a moment. And let's make sure we define carefully that, you know, in I have the New American Standard. Mm-hmm. You have the ESV. Right. Uh, mine says immorality. Um, what's the word pernea? You know, it's what does sexual it immorality, sexual sexual immorality. And, uh, ESV as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about what, what is that? Well, sexual immorality is translated, uh, translating the Greek word pornea, pornea, 
which was a catch-all word, if you like, for any type of sexual activity outside the plan of God, outside of God's intended purpose for sex, which is pretty easy. Sex was intended by God, given to us by God, a very good gift, by the way, mm -hmm. a very powerful gift. Right. Therefore, he designed it to be exercised within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And of course, it's a very relevant issue today, but it is heterosexual sex right. that is affirmed in the Bible. Any other type of sexual behavior, premarital sex, uh, homosexuality, unnatural variations of sex are ruled out of court, out of bounds as sinful by the scriptures. And so that's what he is getting at here when he makes that statement about sexual immorality and causing someone to commit adultery. Right. So of course the question then is what's the context here? What are the fairies asking about? Right. I think quite clearly they're asking about marriage and about divorce. It might include betrothal, which back then also required a yes. certificate of divorce, but it's certainly not exclusively betrothal, I think. It's, right. it's broader, as, as Dr. Aiken was was saying, and so it's the idea that, that except for pornea, would probably refer to uh, adultery mm -hmm. or any other sexual unfaithful behavior within marriage. Uh, now remember, the Old Testament, we didn't mention that, but, but in, in the Ten Commandments, right, one of them is yeah. don't commit adultery. Right. And so that was already considered to be a violation of the marriage covenant. And so it seems like Jesus is affirming that here. Right. And it's always interesting to me uh, as that passage goes on, how the disciples, how the disciples have a hard time. <laughs> They're like, wait a minute, you know, if, if, if marriage. They probably held yeah. to, uh, to uh, the Hillel right. school right. Of, right. of thought and there. And suddenly they said, no, you can't do that. And they're looking at each other. I can just imagine them looking at each other like, oh, you know, we, yeah, I think we what, gotta what, hang in there. What is intriguing is is, you know, is that Jesus in his response to them is not really sympathizing with them. No. Saying, I know it's hard, right? Yeah. He says, well, you know, if somebody has the gift of celibacy. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. he basically says in verse 11, if you can't handle he it. He doesn't. Yeah, that's good. So, so let's make sure in the time we have. So, okay, so why not in Mark? Why not in Luke? When you look at the parallel passages over in, in those gospels, if you're looking at Mark 10, Luke 16, right. some of these other passages, why, why is it in Matthew? Why is this exception clause here and maybe not in the other gospels? What are some of the question. ideas? I think uh, the most uh, immediate issue that comes to mind is that Matthew, as everyone would agree, is primarily written to Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And so he presents gotcha. Jesus as a rabbi who's uh, engaging in learned discourse with the other rabbis and so for his audience that degree of detail would have been the most meaningful mm -hmm. and by contrast Mark and Luke are written to predominantly Gentile audience I actually reviewed those passages right before uh, talking to you right. and uh, in Luke for example it's only one verse yeah, right. so Luke, Luke clearly Luke, uh, is not yeah, particularly 16, 18, interested yeah. in going yeah. you know in any detail on that issue Mark gives us a little bit more but as you mentioned uh, he doesn't include that exception clause, perhaps because adultery was commonly viewed as right. violating the marriage. Right. So I assume that, presumably, simply assumed that everybody would have readily agreed that adultery sure. was. So the argument that it only appears in Matthew, the fact that it doesn't appear in the other Gospels, doesn't give me some kind of license to somehow dismiss this teaching as not no, legitimate. No, not at all. I think what you do is you follow the logic of the argument where Jesus says, listen, God's intention was always one man, one woman for life, covenant of marriage. However, 
because of the hardness of your heart, the fallenness of our world, he does allow this concession. It's a concession, Absolutely. not a requirement. Right. So I often, when I'm dealing on a one-on-one basis with someone that may jump on this text and come to me and say, ah, oh, my husband's been unfaithful. I now am required yeah. right. to divorce him. No. There is an allowance here, but I'm going to push back and say God is always uh, a God of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. God would much prefer to see your marriage uh, reconciled, restored, and put back together. Certainly he allows for it. He doesn't require it. And so that's a scapegoat or, or an escape clause that reads much more into the text than what the text itself is saying here. Again, God is a God who delights in putting things back together, sure. not only our own broken lives, Absolutely. but also broken marriages yeah. as well when that's possible. That's good stuff. Yeah, because if you're going to be that, if you're going to be that uh, legalistic, then I guess we should go back to the Old Testament passage and if they actually committed adultery, I guess we should figure out the stoning. They don't want to follow out place. the logic <laughs> of that kind of uh, interpretation. It certainly process. was ended at that point. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, yes. yeah. Mm -hmm. and so we should stone them to death. And maybe another very minor point is that right. while we only have that exception clause in Matthew, we have it in two passages in Matthew, mm -hmm. right? We also right. have it in, in Matthew, Matthew five. chapter 5. Mm -hmm. And so this is not just some sort of an oversight or an, mm -hmm. an isolated reference. Exactly. I mean, this is so let me, this is actually a question that's come from our students as well. So, so let's take this line of thought out. Jesus says that if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. So how do we associate this idea that we're talking about? So, so in other words, you know, if, if does lust equate to pornea, you know, in, in, these, in that idea? And so then they, any wife would have right, grounds for, for divorce. divorce because most every husband has lusted at one time or another. Well, right. um, I can see where that person is coming from, but I think the logic does break down because clearly there's still a difference between uh, the inner motivation and the external. Oh, the classic there, Andres, there's a major difference between murdering in my heart right. and murdering in terms of a exactly. physical act. I, I don't want you to murder me either way, right. but if I have to pick one, I'll take the murdering of the heart any day over the murdering of my physical body. Sure, that's right. Sure. So I think Jesus' sure. point there was simply to get to the root cause, exactly. which, is, which is our sin nature, uh, while the uh, Mosaic Law Code primarily was focused on regulating external and if he deals with the root cause of the heart, then you don't worry about the action taking place because the issues flow from the heart. Sure. Get the heart right, the outward actions take care of themselves. Exactly. Sure. So it's, it is interesting to me, and I do want to just again draw attention to, to the strong hermeneutical uh, point that you were making earlier in the fact that it's obvious that if you're looking at Matthew 19, to go back to Genesis 2 and to go back to Deuteronomy 24 is crucial. Yes. And to see how this whole book in that order. fits together. That's right. In that order. Yeah. Absolutely. And to see how this whole book fits together exactly. for us to have the and proper Deuteronomy 24 is kind of looming behind this mm -hmm. and the varying interpretations in, in Jesus' day. Yeah, because those two rabbinic schools, they were interesting because, you know, you always, the, the, the humorous statement was if your wife burned the bacon, That's you know, right. you, could, you could kick her out in, in the more liberal school. And obviously, again, Jesus, I think there's great here. I mean, there's still grace here. Yeah. Because we still live in a broken world. That's and there's right. realism, as, that too. as you're saying. Yeah. And, and so it's fascinating to me that even in this context that, that we often use to justify or not justify that what we're seeing is, is an extremely gracious 
Lord who's just under, he understands the reality in which we live. And so I'm trying to translate that into the realities of pastoral well, ministry, I hope local that church leadership. When we are dealing with this in our churches, we absolutely want to allow the scriptures to guide us. But in allowing the scriptures to guide us, we also let the spirit of the scriptures guide us in terms of we're dealing in a context of brokenness. So yes, we're extending truth, but we're balancing that truth with grace and mercy and compassion and love. Now, it, situation by situation is going to require different proportions. Uh, sometimes you just about need to knock a guy upside the head uh, because he is in such blatant violation of clear cut scripture. He needs kind of a, a hard knock of grace. Right. Other times there are those where, again, I, I know of a situation right now where a woman is dealing with a very abusive husband. Right. She needs massive measures of love, grace, uh -huh. mercy, care, and compassion. We can come back and talk about maybe harder decisions later, but that right now that's not what she needs. And sometimes right. I fear some of us dump that truth on them and grace and mercy are nowhere to be seen. And that's not the way the scriptures themselves unfold this particular issue. Right, and I want to come back to some of those issues of abuse later, okay. I think, in some of our sessions, because I think it'd be good. So, so before we close this one out, let me just ask a very clear question, and I'm going to use the word of, of biblically, you know, the ideas of biblically justified. Mm -hmm. So, do, where are you in this idea of not 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 commanded, not, not demanded, it. not mm -hmm. required? Every aspect of reconciliation should take place. Everything ought to be done. Chuck Swindoll, and I don't want to make something light out of something very serious, but Chuck Swindoll said there are two things you should never enter into early, embalming and divorce. Um, and so, but, I would agree with him yeah, on both. Yeah. So, but if everything's been done, is a person biblically justified to divorce if adultery or true pornea has occurred? I think if sexual immorality has taken place, there is a permission for divorce. Not a requirement, but there is an allowance or a permission. Yes, I do believe there is. Okay. I agree. I think, uh, as we've said, certainly reconciliation would be the, the strong preference. And Jesus, uh, I think, uh, espouses an extremely high view of marriage here, higher yes. than his contemporaries, higher than his own followers. Right. But uh, he does allow for this one exception. I think in keeping with Old Testament uh, teaching regarding the seriousness of adultery, you know, breaking the marriage covenant. All right. So then the next question that everybody's going to want to hear. So if biblically justified divorce takes place in this particular situation, what about remarriage? I think so. And okay. I think we'll get to 1 Corinthians 7 right. where that allowance is, uh, is made. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. And we're going to take a look at Paul's teachings next. And, 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 and let me quickly step. add, not yeah. all evangelicals are on the same no, page on this. No, we recognize that. And yeah. uh, I respect the arguments that have been set forth contrary to that view. I just still think when you see the flow of Scripture and it fits together, I think quite well, there are allowances both for divorce and there are permissions for mm -hmm. remarrying in the Lord. Right. Absolutely. And I think that when the viewers watch the various pieces of this package we're putting together, they're going to see the different Good. perspectives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I think that's healthy. But one of the things I wanted us to make sure we're focusing on is really a biblically driven yes. perspective, yeah. which and not just a theological conclusion. First century Judaism, the, the traditional divorce ceremony would say, well, see, you're free to remarry. Yeah, right. And so I think, again, in the first century context, people really didn't debate the question if somebody has a legitimate divorce, 
could they legitimately right. remarry? That was assumed. So the characters in Matthew 9 would assume that if that's a, that divorce takes place within this framework, then remarriage is it's not even a debatable issue. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That's outstanding. Well, thank you so much. So let's in the next session, let's go and let's look at uh, Paul. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 7. Okay.